Welcome to Reading with Grace. This is episode one, and today we will be starting book one of the Unwanted series by Lisa McMahon. Now, since this is the very first episode of this podcast, I should probably tell you some important things about it. First of all, my name is Grace, as you may have guessed, and I will be your host throughout the podcast. In this podcast, I plan to read many books and series, and hopefully you will continue to join me. I plan to make my episodes around 30 minutes, which could mean a little above or a little below that time. So however many chapters of the book we can get through in that time will determine how much I read in that episode. I will post twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time USA. So wherever you live, you can figure out when I post for you based on those times. I also plan to give shout outs in my episodes, and here's how you can get one. If you click on any of the episodes, you will find a link in the bio for that episode you can press. You will then be able to send me a voice message asking for a shout out, which means I will mention your name in an episode in the near future. You can also use the voice messages to just send me a message, ask a question, or to give me some feedback on the podcast. I would love to hear from you guys. One last thing I need to mention is that I have another podcast. That's called The Mysterious Benedict Society Read Aloud, where I read, as you may have guessed as well, the Mysterious Benedict Society series. It is a wonderful series that I greatly encourage you to go listen to or read. All four books have been recorded by chapter by chapter and are there for you to listen to. So if you enjoy this podcast or are looking for another, please go check that out. Okay, I think that's everything. If you have any other questions, you can always send me a voice message. I would be happy to answer them. Oh, there is one more thing, and it's just that I urge you to give these books a try. If you find you don't like them at first, in fact, I challenge you to listen to at least the first book. After that, if you are still not enjoying the story, then I will totally understand if you decide to move on. But it's just my opinion that you can't judge a book based on its first few chapters. This is one of my absolutely favorite book series of all time, and I hope will become one of yours as well. Okay, now finally, I am finished, and without further delay, let's get started. Enjoy! The Unwanteds, Book One by Lisa McMahon. One, The Purge. There was a hint of wind coming over the top of the stone walls and through the barbed wire sky on the day Alexander Stowe was to be purged. Alex waited in the dusty commons of Quill and felt the light breeze cooling the sweat on his upper lip. His twin brother Aaron stood beside him, their parents behind. And all around the entire community of Quill watched and waited, the bland looks of sleeping fish on their faces. Mr. Stowe pressed his finger hard into Alex's back. A final poke in the kidneys, a last goodbye, Alex thought. Or a warning not to run. Alex glanced at Aaron, whose face showed the tiniest emotion. Scared, was it? Or sad? Alex didn't know. The high priest Justine, her long white hair undisturbed despite the breeze, rose to her full height and observed the silent crowd. She began without introduction or ado, for the purge was neither exciting nor boring. It just was, as many things just were in Quill. There were nearly 50 13-year-olds this year. The people of Quill waited to hear which of those teenagers had been marked as wanted or necessary, and by process of elimination, which of them remained to be purged. Alex scanned the group and their families around the giant half-circle of the amphitheater. He knew some of them, not all. Alex's mind wandered as the High Priest Justine announced first the names of the Wanteds, and he startled only slightly as the High Priest spoke Aaron's name. Aaron, who'd had nothing to worry about, sighed anyway in relief when he was among the fifteen names called. The Necessaries were next. Thirteen names were read. Alexander Stowe was not one of those, either. 
Even though Alex knew that he was unwanted, and had known ever since his parents had told him over breakfast when he was ten, the knowledge that three years of preparation weren't enough to stop the sweat that prickled his armpits now. It was down to a mere formality unless there was a surprise, which there sometimes was, but it didn't matter. Everyone stood motionless until the final twenty names were called. Among the unwanted, Alexander Stowe. Alex didn't move, though his heart felt like a cement block into his gut. He stared straight ahead as he'd seen the other unwanteds do in the past years. His lip quivered for a moment, but he fought it still. When the governors came over to him, he put his arms out for them to shackle with rusty iron bands. He made his eyes icy cool before he glanced over his shoulder at his parents, who remained unemotional. His father nodded slightly and finally took his finger out of Alex's back after the shackles were secure. That was a minor relief, but what did it matter now? Aaron sniffed once quietly, catching Alex's attention in the silent amphitheater. The identical boys held a glance for a moment. Something like a jolt of energy passed between them, and then it was gone. Goodbye, Aaron whispered. Alex swallowed hard, held the stare for a second more as the governors tugged him to follow, and then broke the connection and went with the governors to the waiting bus that would take him to his death. Two, wanted. Aaron Stowe, the wanted, watched his brother Alex board the rusty box of a bus, and then he turned his eyes to the formidable high priest Justine. She retreated to her aging jeep-like vehicle, flanked by two guards with her secretary, and they began to drive back up the dusty hill to the palace, leaving a trail of gray smoke and sharp odor to linger in the heavy air. The rest of the quills slowly dispersed on foot. Murmurs surfaced and drifted through the crowd, not about the purge, of course. That was already a cloudy memory for some. Instead, they spoke of their plans for the rest of the day, for the day of purge was Quill's one holiday each year. All of the wanteds and most of the necessaries, except those who tended to the farm animals, were free to do as they pleased for the rest of it. Aaron knew what he would be doing. He turned to his mother and father and said with a decisive air, All set then? Miss Stowe nodded primly and the three of them followed the crowd down the dusty path that led to Quadrant 4, where they lived. We'll finish making your uniform and get your things packed for university, she said. Cut your hair too. She looked at Mr. Stowe and asked, I don't suppose we'll get the unwanted boys' clothes and shoes back, will we? Mr. Stowe, who had once been quite handsome, but now curled up a bit from years of breakbacking work as a barrier, shook his head. No. Well, that's a waste. Aaron could have used them. The shoes, at least. Wish I'd thought to take them before he left. I wouldn't want to wear them, Aaron said, and then he pinched his lips together before he said more. Still, his mother narrowed her eyes and spoke softly, almost fearfully. You'll do well to forget about him. Aaron kept silent for a moment, thinking, You're right, he said finally. It won't happen again. See to it, said Mr. Stowe. After fifteen minutes, they had reached Quadrant Four, a residential square mile of tiny, identical houses planted closely together like rows of sweet corn, each house the color of dry, cracked desert that surrounded it. The crowd of people split up now and weaved their way between the structures until they reached their own individual houses. Aaron and his parents nodded politely to their neighbors as they walked along. When Aaron saw a familiar couple around the same age as his parents walking alone, he touched his mother's sleeve. How odd, he said. Isn't Mr. Ranger a milker? Yes, she said. Why is he out and about instead of doing his job? Aaron's eyes narrowed. He must have been given the day off this year because of the unwanted daughter. Did they know in advance, I wonder? She turned to Mr. Stowe. Not that I heard. That's a blow, Mr. Stowe said. He yawned as they neared their house, number 5443. They'll be cut off from reproducing now. That was their second offense. Mr. Stowe wrinkled his nose. They'll be completely ridiculed by the wanteds for poor production. Miss Stowe gave her husband a disapproving glance. You'll be careful what you say, she snapped. Least you forget, we've a wanted in our presence now. Aaron raised his chin slightly as his parents stood aside the front door, allowing the boy to enter before them for the first time. 
Yes, be careful, father, Aaron said coolly, or I'll have to report your insubordination for a comment like that. Aaron took a dignified stride as he made his way through the tiny kitchen to the even tinier bedroom that he no longer had to share. It's true, he thought. Enough mourning. Alex has likely been eliminated by now. The twinge in his gut was soon dulled by thoughts of his now-secured future and a tiny surge of power. He was Aaron Stowe, the wanted. And he had a lot more to prove than most, having been born of two necessaries, not to mention overcoming the stigma of a worthless twin brother. It was, Aaron knew, a huge accomplishment to have made it to the top like this. He began to pack his suitcase, a satisfied feeling of growing inside him, for tonight would be his last night living with his necessary parents. Tomorrow he would go to university to be with the others of his elevated status. 3. The Death Farm No one spoke during the 15-minute bus ride to the Death Farm. It was stifling hot. Flies buzzed and darted at the closed windows, unable to escape. When Alex pulled out of his deep gaze, he was wiped with the sweat off his forehead with his upper arm and looked around the bus. In front of Alex, connected to him by a long chain over the high back bus seat, was his neighbor and friend, Megan Ranger. It was a bit of a shock to see her in this group. She'd had only one infraction as far as he knew, but it was a double. Singing and dancing. Alex had witnessed it, but it wasn't Hugh who had reported her. She had a pretty voice, too, but Alex was not permitted to think about that. Despite the heat, Megan's face was white as the moon. Across the bus aisle was Sam Heed Burkish, who was well-known to Alex but not necessarily well-liked by him. Alex was surprised to see him here, too, since the boy had privately boasted to Alex and Aaron only last week that he was going to be in the quilletary. Sam Heed was obviously fighting tears and glared furiously when Alex's eyes landed on him. "'What are you looking at?' Sam Heed said. But one of the young governors gave Sam Heed a warning look. Unwanteds were not allowed to speak. Their last words had already been uttered before the purge. Alex dropped his eyes and took in a few deep breaths, vowing silently not to look at Sam Heat again until, uh, well, ever. Instead, he turned his gaze to the seat behind his own, not having noted in the shock of it all he was attached to his other arm. He nearly had to stand in order to see over the high back seat to where the chain led, but he didn't since the governors were watching. All he could see was straight jet black hair and big watery blue eyes of someone he had sure to be a girl. But a tiny girl for 13, he thought. She didn't turn away. Instead, she held his gaze, blinking away her tears only once during the long moment. Her eyes were deep and soulful, with wet black lashes all clumped together from crying. After a moment, Alex attempted a half-smile. He doubted that she could see his mouth if he couldn't see hers. But her eyes crinkled the tiniest bit in response, and for some reason it made Alex feel just a little bit good. There was no one else on the rickety old bus that Alex knew. He thought for a moment about being here alone with the governors, and for some selfish reason he couldn't quite explain. He felt a rush of something glad, knowing Megan and the others were there with him, that he wasn't the only unwanted in the entire land of Quill. The bus chugged past the nursery where all of Quill's trees stood, past the cattle ranch on the way out of town, and along the dark, stingy, gray south wall of Quill for several minutes, before the equally bland houses disappeared and the land grew untended and desolate. Alex's stomach churned when the driver barked, and the bus slowly groaned to a stop in front of the black, solid iron gates of what the people of Quill called the Death Farm. None but the high priest Justine and the governors had ever been inside the gates and returned alive, and they didn't speak of it. Only the people of Quill and hushed voices would talk about it now and then, and speculate about how long you might be held there before the Eliminators disposed of you. And how just did they do it? Was it painful? Did they sedate you before tossing you into the Great Lake of Boiling Oil? Alex tried hard not to think of these things, but the harder he tried, the more he thought of them, and so it was almost with relief that he heard the bus door creak open, and the governors tell all of the unwanted to stand and disembark. There was a distinct smell, pungent, when the children walked off the bus and gathered along the black gate that led them to the farm. 
It was an uncommon odor, different from the fried smells that came from the quilletary vehicles. Alex assumed that it was burning oil wafting off the nearby lake. He had never been this close to it before, since no one was allowed near it. No one could even see the lake because the towering cement block walls that surrounded the land reached all the way up to the barbed wire searing, 40 feet above. No one, that is, except the unwanteds. Alex glanced at the black-haired, blue-eyed girl next to him. The protective barbed wire ceiling that crisscrossed and covered the entire land of Quill made a shadow box across her face, capturing a tear. She shook silently. She was not 13, Alex decided. In a brave moment with nothing to lose, he whispered, I'm Alex. It'll go quickly. He wasn't sure why he had said that. It was the only comforting thing he could think of. She blinked and turned her face up at him, making the shadow boxes race across her face like they did across everything everywhere. Lonnie, she whispered back and shook her head, and no, it won't. Alex didn't know what to say. He stood at attention as the governor took a key from a string around her neck and unlocked the gate. Summon the eliminators, the woman said. Another governor obliged by pounding on the gate. When the enormous gate creaked open, the governor stepped away and began boarding the bus again. Lonnie watched them go, tears streaming down her face. Goodbye, father, she said as a slight gray-haired man boarded. The senior governor paused in the doorway for a split second and then, perhaps heavily, continued up the steps without looking back. He took a seat on the opposite side of the bus. Lonnie turned away and roughly whisked the tears from her cheeks. The bus drove off as the giant black iron door to the death farm widened enough for the chain children to enter single file. Inside were four enormous eliminators robed in black. Their heads were covered in cloth, but their beady red eyes pierced into the already frightened souls of the children. Lonnie now appeared to be the only calm one. She held her head high as the long shade of children walked inside. What are they? Megan gasped, and she reached awkwardly for Alex's hand. Alex grasped Megan's hand and gave it a frightened squeeze. I don't know, he whispered. He felt like his chest was going to collapse, breathing in and out slowly. Alex closed his eyes for a moment and shivered at the gate groaned and closed with a loud clang, the lock clicking automatically on the other side, separating them from Quill forever. The eliminators took the ends of the chains and trudged slowly, the children following. They were in a small cement yard, a gray stone building stood before them, and a steaming black lake boiled beyond it. Alex shuddered. That's where they'll do it to us. The only oily stitch seemed to grow stronger as they shuffled across broken cement, past bundles of burning-looking weeds toward the building. It was more desolate than most wasted section of Quill. Even the sky was clouded in gray here, although there was no barbed wire, just open sky. None of them had ever seen an uninterrupted sky before. Everything was eerily silent before the clanking of the chains and the scuffle of shoes as the unwanted moved forward. The seconds felt like hours. When the eliminators stopped walking and turned their eyes to the sky, Alex followed their gaze. The other children looked up too. From the sky over the boiling black lake, a large bird, or something, slowly approached. The eliminators seemed to be waiting for it, as they stood huge, hulking silent, as a four-legged winged creature landed with an ominous thud directly in front of them. 4. Elimination The creature was an extraordinarily beautiful yet frightening tortoise with long wings that were covered in glistening white feathers tipped with black. The mosaic shelled beast stood on all four legs stretching out his neck to view its audience, and even on all fours was more than half as tall as the smallest child Lonnie. The spectacular creature bobbed its head to the eliminators and then it looked and each one wanted in the eye. In turn, each dropped its gaze and instinctively drew back as far as its chains would allow. After a few moments, the tortoise appeared satisfied. When it spoke, to the other shock of the children, it was a deep, agonizing, slow voice. Welcome, the tortoise said, low and grim. And the word caused a chill to run up Alex's spine. We've been, it paused for a breath, expecting you. 
Sam heeded the glaring blow from the bus who had been silent all this time, muttered an oath under his breath, and raised his fists ready to fight. But Alex and the others were fearfully mesmerized by the odd creature that stood before them. What was this thing? Was it going to attack? What did it have to do with this decrypt farm that contained nothing but the smell of death? They watched the tortoise, almost afraid to look at its grim face, but not quite able to look away either. The tortoise blinked, a long, slow blink, craning its long neck to look behind it. It lifted its round front leg and held it next to its mouth, as if to cup its words. Marcus, it called out with its slow, grim voice. It's time. What in the name of Quill is it doing? Alex wondered. A moment later, a tall, thin figure emerged from the gray building and lifted his hand. All at once, Alex felt dizzy, and the space around him seemed to swirl, the oily lake whirling with the gray building and the wall behind them, until everything was spinning charcoal haze. He blinked rapidly and wondered if he and all the other children had already been eliminated, if it was over. Nothing on his body hurt, yet the charcoal blur of everything around him now faded, softened, cooled to white, and then grew steadily brighter, nearly blinding him. This was nothing at all like what Alex had expected to feel when immersed in the great lake of boiling oil. Megan, who could not help herself, cried out, What's happening? Alex squeezed her fingers, more to assure himself than her that they were still together. He sucked in a breath but couldn't answer. Another moment later, the white melted and color emerged. The small, desolate lot had transformed into a huge world so full of color, Alex could hardly see. The sun shone in the Cerulean sky, the cement turned to a lush carpet of grass, then water fountains emerged from the earth. A thousand trees sprouted and grew to full height, scattered far and wide. The boiling lake softened into a calm sea of blues and greens, and the single gray building expanded into an enormous, sprawling, fieldstone mansion. The gnarled weeds at the children's feet wavered and transformed into wide-eyed animals, both common and fantastic. Even the Eliminators transformed. Their black cloth coverings disappeared, and all four grew even taller, with animal-like heads and sleek, long necks that melted into huge, stout, strong bodies like the Unwanteds had never seen. The newly transformed Eliminators were covered in a fine layer of shimmering black hair that reflected the sunlight, and their previously frightening red eyes grew kind and intelligent, a rich amber round. As the Unwanteds gawked and shackles on their arms unbuckled and fell to the ground, they took in a collective awed breath, rubbed their sore wrists, and checked to see if the others were all still there. The tall, thin figure that had emerged from the gray building, now mansion, was a man dressed in a flowing, multicolored robe. He strolled toward them. A fluffy shock of white hair stood up on his head as if he had just been struck by lightning. Greetings, friends, the man said. His voice warm and clear, pealed like a pleasant-sounding bell. He opened his arms wide. I am Marcus today. Welcome to Artemis. He paused, touching a finger to his lips, and then he smiled brightly. Tell me, children, how does it feel to be eliminated? 5. Mr. Today It was as if Alex and the others were mute, and indeed the colors of this magical place alone would have been enough to shock any Quillian, for Quill was a bland world whose brightest color was the green of the leafy trees in the nursery. In Quill, all the trees are confined to one place, so that no one could notions about introducing such a bright color into the housing quadrants. But here in Artme, all the colors felt warm, from the deep foresty greens of the plants to the soothing blues of the sky and sea. The stranded beach was not a dingy gray like the cement walls around Quill. It was clean and white with tiny bits of silver and gold sparkling in the sunshine. A cool breeze whisked away the odor of burning oil from the children's noses and replaced it with the musky fragrance of the sea in the woods. The children breathed the wonderful scent, hesitating at first at its strangeness, and then nearly gulping it in, for several of them had been holding their breath for quite some time. Not one of the unwanted could even look around and ask, is this a joke? Because Quill was a serious place, and it was doubtful that any of twenty of them even knew that a joke was possible. 
Most likely, 19 of them had never known the word joke, and the one that had known it most surely had reported it to the governors and thus ended up here. Whatever here was, if not the death farm. Puzzled, Alex and the others could only stare at this man so brightly adorned, and some were frightened, perhaps, not of Mr. Today himself, but rather for him, since his smile was so animated, his delight was so obvious, that it surely meant he would be reported to the governors and sent to the, well, sent to here. But beyond all of that was the pure shock of seeing a winged tortoise, which at the moment sported a draw smile. The transformation of the land and lake, so inviting that in a different situation, one might entertain a thought of swim on such a warm day, even though such an imaginative thoughts were not allowed. And the, what would the eliminators be called? No one had ever seen a creature like them. Whatever they were, their deep, heavy breaths made up the bulk of the noise for the moment. It was all so stunning that it was almost nearly, but not quite, uncomfortable. And so the unwanted stood blinking, and the man called Mr. Today stood smiling, and the Eliminator stood panting, and the winged tortoise stood drooling, all of them in a sort of lumpy circle. When they began to walk about the property, Mr. Today pointed out little fanciful combinations of creatures, rabbit keys and bebops and squirrelicorns and owl bats, which hopped around the grounds looking for a snack, or strolled down footpaths together in deep conversation, or hung upside down from trees, twisting their necks about this way and that. Soon a queue of humans and creatures streamed from the mansion, and appeared to go about business as usual, which was all the more shocking. For a child of Quill, who might have been sent to his death, for merely drawing something completely ordinary with a twig in the dirt, like a square perhaps, or good heavens, a rhombus. The shock of it all felt a little bit like a form of torture, and truly, more than half of the unwanted thought, we are still about to die. The tortoise cleared its throat and spoke to Mr. Today. You may, it repeated slowly, remember, Marcus, what happens, it yawned. Every year. Mr. Today, who had been gazing and smiling and taking in the sights of these new and wonderful people, watching their faces and eyes and noticing if they had long fingers or short ones, and taking note of how each one stood exactly so, startled when the tortoise spoke, and he jumped quite, making everyone else just that much more edgy. Good heavens, Jim, you're right! Mr. Today stood up quite tall and announced in somewhat of a rushed voice. Jim is correct, children. I generally forget from year to year what a terribly shocking experience is. This is for the unwanteds. And let me assure you before you follow me around all day. This happened last year and I'll never forgive myself. Those poor sweet children agonize half the morning. That this is not a sort of torture before I eliminate you ordeal. This world and the shock of it. What I've done here, you see, is, well, he gave a small smile. I've saved you. That is, if you want saving. His audience stared. Let me ask you this, the man continued, more slowly trying to rein in his excitement for the sake of the bewildered unwanteds. Does anyone wish to be eliminated right now? Mr. Today waited politely for ten seconds or so to see if there were more volunteers. When he saw that there were none, he nodded and smiled as the children uttered short gasps of acknowledgement to each other at the realization of their new fate, such as, We're saved? And wow! And unreal! Mr. Today remained still and smiling until they were quite finished, and then he said, Oh, splendid! Well then, let's have a tour. Mr. Today dismissed the hefty long-necked eliminators, the drynos, he called them, with a kindly, Thank you, RJ, ladies. And the four grinos responded pleasantly and melodious voices. Pleasure, Marcus dear, before lumbering back to the gate to stand guard. Meanwhile, Jim lifted a front leg in salute, turned away from the circle, broke into a staggering walk for momentum, and flapped his wings mightily. Slowly, very, very slowly, he ascended and flew over the property this time, narrowly shaving the top of a particular trawled tree on the lawn, toward what looked like to be a jungle in the far-off distance, just beyond the edge of grass. Mr. Today turned back to the children, who had moved very little all this time, and beckoned with his hand. Walk with me, he urged, and with that he strode sprightly across the lawn, pointing out the flowers and various creatures like a tour guide, and pretending there was nothing at all unusual about twenty seemingly mute children stumbling after him.
Six, Quill reveals when the strong survive. After the purge, the High Priestess Steen gazed pointedly out the window of the ancient Quill Terry Dropley, in which she wrote, Next to her sat the secretary to the high priest, a prune of a woman who had served the land of Quill since Justina become ruler fifty years before. While the secretary was not a forgetful woman, she had somehow managed to disremember her own name decades ago, and no one else could recall it either. Now she simply answered to secretary. Normally, the high priest Justine was accompanied by at least one governor as well, but on the day of the purge, all of the governors were busy delivering the unwanted to their deaths, and so it was just the two women in the back seat of the vehicle today. Secretary, Justine said evenly, I've decided that this will be your last year. Secretary stood straight ahead of the back of the driver's head. She nodded slowly. The high priest continued, I'll choose your successor from the university. You'll train him as your assistant. When he's ready, we'll send you on to the ancient sector to be put to sleep. Quill prevails when the strong survive, murmured Secretary. Her voice showed no emotion. It was a matter of usefulness, of course. Until this year, when Secretary's eyesight had begun to grow fuzzy, there would have been no reason to eliminate her. Though recently, she seemed to be moving a little more slowly, too. Her time had come, and the last thing Secretary wanted was to bring shame to the High Priest Justine or to the Land of Quill for not emanating perfect strength. Secretary nodded her head slowly and watched the dizzying blur of the checkerboard shadows that rushed over the vehicle from the barbed wire overhead. The shadows did not make her feel secure today. When they arrived at the palace, the High Priest Justine and Secretary made their way to the dining room for the annual steak luncheon feast, this year celebrating the largest purge of unwanteds Quill had ever seen. A moment later, Quilletary General Blair arrived, greeted with the High Priest, and took his place at the far end of the table. The three waited in silence until the Governor's return from the Death Farm. Justine's eyes gleamed when he finally appeared. Greetings, Governors. The unwanted have been disposed of, I presume? She asked as the police servants served the meal. Senior Governor Haluki nodded curtly and handed the Death Farm's gate key to the High Priest Justine. It's done, he said. He was one of the two middle-aged Governors. The other four were young and fairly new to their post over the past five years, all recent graduates from the wanted university. They had replaced Justine's elderly governors who had been put to sleep at once they lost their edge. The high priest nodded to Aluki, satisfied. A record year, she said. She began preoccupied with working her dull knife like a saw across the stake. After an unsuccessful bout, she glanced up. It was the first year that the unwanted outnumbered our wanteds. Haluki grunted as he attacked his stake. Even so, we've been too lenient from the past years, he said gruffly. Quill feels richer without them already. Indeed it does, quite right, Justine muttered, still struggling with the stake. Finally frustrated, she slammed the knife on the table. Cook, she bellowed to the empty doorway, and then she turned to senior governor. Great land of Quill, Haluki. Find me a university student who can solve the beef problem, will you? This stake is nowhere near first rate. Of course, Haluki said, nodding to the young governor Strang, who made a mental note of the assignment. At the high priest's call, the palace cook rushed into the dining room and bowed deeply. His body trembled, though his face was dull and lifeless. Justine glared at the cook. Clean up the kitchen. When you are finished, find me a replacement cook, one who actually knows something about cooking to serve in your stead. The cook's eyes grew wide. But the meat, he began. Silence, Justine hissed. By dusk, I want you to make your way to the ancient's home. You have outlived your usefulness. How have you made it past me when you were thirteen? I know not. You should have been an unwanted. Yes, High Priest Justine, whispered the cook. His face was now struck with the realization that he would die that night. He knew better than to ask if he could stop at his house in Quadrant 3 to say goodbye to his wife. Justine dismissed the cook with a wave and he disappeared. Haluki, Justine continued, you are right. I've been far too lenient, letting some slip by as necessaries when they should have been eliminated. From now on, one reported infraction is one too many. There should be no room for mistakes in Quill. Loud cheers echoed all the way down the table to General Blair, who shouted, Quill prevails when the strong survive. Five governors echoed the sentiment. Senior Governor Haluki, gnawing wildly at his stake bone, eyed the elderly high priest. Hear, hear, he said.
Six, Artemé. It took a good deal of the afternoon for the children to thaw. Alex had a small headache, but it seemed to go away once a group of teenagers who were slightly older looking than the group of unwanteds delivered to them a delicious picnic supper on the lawn by the shore. As the children ate, the teenagers formed two rows facing them. A rousing but pleasant noise burst from the nearby bushes, and the group started words of welcome in the most peculiar way. The tops of the nearby trees seemed to swish in the breeze like pom-poms. The unwanteds had no idea what it all was, as they had never seen nor heard anything like it before. Alex could guess, though, since he had witnessed Megan's very serious infraction, that what the teenagers were doing was called singing. And though the noise was very fast and loud, it was exciting, and it sounded good to his ears. He looked at Megan, concerned, knowing how wrong this sort of thing was. But Megan was entrapped by the performers and didn't notice. When the song had ended, the choir plowed politely while Mr. Today applauded loudly. Clap for them, he said to the new unwanteds, like this, hands together, applause, and tells them that you liked it, he explained as the choir dissipated. You did like it, didn't you, Megan? I'll bet you did. Megan's eyes grew wide. She glanced in each direction uneasily, perhaps out of habit, and cleared her throat. Yes, very much, sir. And then, when Mr. Today chuckled merrily, she added, Thank you, and tried to smile. He nodded encouragingly to her, and to all the children, and then his face grew sober. You may express your feelings and say what you are thinking here in Artemis, he said in a soft voice. It will be hard at first, but you are safe to speak your mind, all of you. His eyes grew misty for a moment. Then he clasped his hands in his lap. There are some things we should talk about, he said. Everyone stopped what they were doing, and all eyes focused on Mr. Today, who continued. You already know that your parents and the government of Quill believe you to be eliminated by now. You know that they are not mourning for you. They're doing what they do every day, which is to work and build Quill into a place of extreme power and superintelligence. You, dear children, are what they call creative, imaginative. The government, and especially High Priest Justine, wants to eliminate creative thinkers like you. They see creativity as a weakness. After all, it could lead to something horrible, like magic. He afforded a small smile, picked a flower, and handed it to Megan. She hesitated and then took it, and in her hand it turned into a small silver music box. Megan jumped and sucked in a startled breath. Music, Mr. Today said. When you wind the little key, the music box will play a song. Sometimes you'll hear a song with voices saying something, like we just witnessed here a moment ago. Megan nodded. Singing, she said. She turned the key tentatively, and a few wondrous notes sprang from the box. She startled, and then shock melted into a grin. Indeed, Mr. Today replied, peering at the others to see if they understood. Singing and dancing, painting, sculpting, telling wild tales, he said, glancing at Lonnie, who blushed. Theater, playing instruments, writing stories and poems. He continued, glancing at the various others at each word. That is what you are now free to do. He noticed their puzzled looks. Ah, but I'm getting ahead of myself. He paused and tapped a finger to his lips, as if he were thinking carefully. I have two very serious requests. Because of your creative minds, you have been eliminated, or so think the people of Quill. My first request is this. Please consider the ramifications if you ever decide you want to go back to Quill. The group of children blinked, hanging on to every word. If you ever go back, if you ever contact anyone there in any way, your parents or your siblings, he said, glancing at Alex. The governors or anyone, you risk exposing us all. You take the lives of everyone here in Artemis into your own hands. If discovered, this place and everyone in it will be destroyed. Alex shivered. Even though the day was still warm, he thought about his twin brother Aaron and felt a sharp pain run through him, as if half his own body had been severed from the rest. But he knew that Mr. Today was right, and there was no way he would jeopardize the life of a man who had saved him, or the lives of the others here. Alex nodded very seriously along with the rest of the group, but part of Alex wished that Aaron could have shared in his good fortune. My second request, Mr. Today said, is this. Please take the classes I offer, train with my warriors and learn how to fight. Because if the High Priest Justine, the Governor's, or the Quilitary does discover that you have not been eliminated, he paused, letting the words sink in. 
They will kill me for deceiving them, and then they will kill you once and for all. And if that happens, Artemis will disappear. Samhiru had been silent ever since he whispered oath. Now stiffened, fight against the quilteri, he sneered. Impossible. Mister Jaday cocked his head. Ah, Samhiru, he said. The realm of possibility here in Artemis is only limited by our imaginations. You'll get used to it after a time. But you seem quite disturbed, my friend. What is it that you think fighting is impossible? Look at us," Samhiru said, waving his hands at the group. He stopped and pointed at Alex, glaring. In case you don't know, we're the rejects from Quill. We're not strong or intelligent. We're not capable of fighting. We're worthless. And you think we stand a chance against the Quilleteri? Samhiru rose to his feet. What have you done here is really impressive, Mister Today. But come on, you don't seem to have any soldiers except for that group of oversized animals at the gate. No tanks, no weapons. They'll destroy us in about one minute. Alex shifted uncomfortably and looked down. The small smile on Mister Today's face remained hidden by his hand as he stroked his chin and grew thoughtful. Hmm, he said, almost as if he expected Samhiru to say more, and the boy did. This place is ridiculous. I'm not taking your stupid classes. At the word "stupid" and all the words around it, the other children's eyes widened in fear. And Quill and Upwards like this was against the law, and a more egregious infection that would seal a child's fate with no exception. It's not stupid, Lonnie burst out without meaning to. She clapped her hand over her mouth. Alex, feeling both a bit protected of Lonnie and a bit miffed at Samhiru for always glaring at him, shifted on the picnic blanket in case he had to do something. Although he had no idea what something might be, and a shot a look of support at Lonnie. Samhiru laughed sarcastically. Not for a baby, maybe. He looked at Mister Today in the eye and said, "I think you are a complete lunatic." And then, as if he knew where he was going, he stalked off down the lawn to the seashore and kept walking along its edge. The unwanted's watch stunned. Every one of the children knew that people in Quill were not allowed to argue or become angry with other Quillians. They were taught to bank their rage and keep it somewhere deep inside, so that in case of an attack, they would, with one unified surge, pour the rage out upon the heads of their enemies. Of course, Quill had quite a lot of rage saved up, since there have been no signs of enemies in the entire fifty years of High Priest Justine's reign. Yet the government instilled much fear into the people about the evil foreign lands beyond the protective walls of Quill. Unimaginable places could be like the great desert and the dark forest, as if an attack were imminent. And who were the people of Quill to question the rulers who had kept them safe all this time? But here in Artemis, nothing was as if the Amontes expected. The other children began chattering, shocked to see Amhi's actions and words. What is he doing? Is he allowed to go off like that? Isn't someone going to stop him? Why does he have to be so mean? The last one from Lonnie, who felt wounded having just been called a baby. Samhiru's outbursts were foreign to the unwanted, and they watched Mister Today waiting for him to punish Samhiru for the infraction. But to their great puzzlement, Mister Today did nothing. As the old man watched the children react to the scene, it was hard for him to hide the mirth that crinkled around his eyes. Bravo, bravo, my dear boy! He called in the direction of Samhiru. That's the way. Perfect, he thought. Even better than he had hoped for the first day. He put his hands together and began clapping and shouting. Samhiru flung up his hands in disgust and continued walking. The others, startled, had no idea what to think. But after a moment, Meg began to clap too, for there was something inside her churning mind that was just about, but not quite, understood why. Soon, Alex joined in as if he almost understood it too, and a curious look passed between Meg and him, one that made them both want to laugh out loud.